Heidi. And Melissa. And we're so glad you're joining Beyond the Defense. Thank you to our return listeners who came back to hear another episode of our podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Sarah Mieser, who recently completed her doctoral research. Dissertation was titled Combating Sexual Violence on College Campuses, Exploring the Relationship Between Values and Bystander Intervention Among College Students. Sarah earned her Doctorate of Education in Learning and Leading from the University of Portland, where she graduated just last month, and we're so excited to engage with her in conversation about her research today. I'm happy to introduce Dr. Sarah Mieser to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Could you start by introducing yourself to our audience? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Sarah Mieser. I'm currently the Interim Title IX Coordinator at the University of Portland and just completed my doctorate in leading and learning from the University of Portland because tuition remission is a fantastic benefit. Prior to being in Title IX, I spent most of my higher ed career in residence life and housing, including student conduct. Great. Can you give us a little bit of insight into how you settled on your topic for your dissertation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So for most of my time taking courses, I was thinking I wanted to do something related to college student learning as it related to incidents of misconduct, because that was where I was working. And I was just seeing a lot of learning opportunities through behavioral choices, which I thought could be really interesting to explore. But as I get closer to actually having a dissertation, I met with my chair and really got talking about what should my topic be? What do I want it to be? And got thinking and realizing I wanted something maybe beyond the exact experience of student misconduct and learning related to it. and want something a little bit more campus related or holistic related, really thinking about kind of beyond the conduct office. Was lucky enough to have some connections to help connect me to a existing data set that had some really interesting data about student values and also student bystander intervention. But my interest in kind of looking for that data came from working in Title IX with some really awesome students who were being really positive community members in incidents of sexual violence or after incidents of sexual violence. And really looking at that from a practitioner standpoint, but also from a parent standpoint and saying, that was really cool. How do we get more of that? Definitely. And I think one of the things we're looking at your dissertation, a lot of times we study bystander intervention or we study its relationship to sexual misconduct or sexual assault in the numbers. But the addition of values, I thought, was very, very interesting. Thank you. I was really curious about where do these really pro-social members of our community come from? And once we understand that, how do we create more of them? Can you say more on this concept of pro-social? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, pro-social behavior are behaviors that serve others and serve community well. They can be things that nurture, protect, or support other people or communities of people. So really looking at not just were you there, but were you there in a way that helped, basically. That's an interesting concept. I'm not, I was not familiar with that prior to uh, reading through your dissertation, Sarah. You're looking at this concept of bystander intervention and values of college students, university students. 
What's your method? What what are you thinking about in terms of how do we attack? How do we measure this problem? How do we evaluate that? What what came to mind as you're sort of navigating your methodological toolkit? Yeah, I really started doing some research into what's already out there about college student values. I guess when I was working with some students who are being really excellent helpful members of a community and really positive bystanders, I was really curious about kind of what led them to engage in the way that they did that wasn't necessarily self-serving. They had a lot to lose in the situation, but for the benefit of someone else, even though they were uncomfortable, even though there were, you know, social relationships that made that complicated. So I was really kind of just from a human standpoint, wondering what motivated you to make that choice? And motivation is really hard to measure. So I started doing a little bit of research into what's out there in the literature. How do we talk about motivation or values or why people do the things they do? And stumbled into some existing survey instruments that were looking at college student values and said, oh, this looks really interesting. Find a way to connect student values and perception of community values with bystander behavior. And what I thought was particularly interesting is that you use your survey instrument, you know, existing data, but you you were familiar with the study site, uh, which shall remain anonymized. <laughs> but you you know a fair amount about this study site in terms of the sort of mission statement and the values that are promoted by the faculty and staff at that particular campus. What was your hunch before you looked at the data set? You know, what what did you sort of hypothesize about your research questions before you dug in? You know, having a little bit of prior knowledge and exposure to the participating institution, I perceived it as a place where people really cared about each other. That being said, not all individuals who care about other people engage as pro-social bystanders in situations where there's, you know, personal risk, whether it's emotional risk or physical risk or just social risk of, my friends may not like this when I stand up and say, that behavior is problematic. So I was really perceiving that there would be strong values related to community and others. One of the studies I found kind of doing my research was that there was a study that used a similar research instrument looking at how do college students perceive their values and the values of their institution. That was from, I think, early 2000s at a large research one institution in the Southeast. And when they did their research, they found that none of the students that they surveyed for their personal values, none of them had personal values related to other people or community, which was shocking to me because I didn't feel like that was what I was expecting in the participating institution. So I was really curious to find out, hey, am I really wrong about that? You know, are these students really focused on, you know, traditional metrics of success, like achievement and being top of the class, as opposed to being good friends and being helpful individuals? I was pleasantly surprised to find, I don't know if surprise is the right word, I was pleasantly confirmed that Yes, they are really interested in other people and their community when it comes to their personal values. How many students were at your study site? At the site or in the survey? How big is the campus? About 4,000 undergrads. Okay. Do you think that when you talk about the outcomes of each study, do you think the size of the institution plays into that? Like students who go to a larger institution? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, after being a student at a small institution and working at both large and small institutions professionally, I think it's a lot easier to have a connection to your community, like campus-wide community at a smaller institution where, you know, you're a couple steps removed from almost everybody at that institution. Everybody's a friend of a friend. Compared to being at a school with maybe 40,000 students, you know, you maybe know the people in your residence hall or in your major or in your organization, but don't have a connection to the small city that you're going to school in. I have a question about your instrument, and I believe it's a 50-question survey that you were able to get your hands on some raw data from that. Looking back at it now after the defense, or in, in our case, beyond the defense, what do you wish you would have been able to add to the survey? Is there, you know, in terms of using ex post facto data where you didn't get the chance to design pieces of, of the instrument, what is it, what were some of the challenges with that? Yeah, I think the thing that I felt was really missing as I was analyzing the data and that I really wanted more about was some of the qualitative data that just didn't exist in the data set I had access to. So I think we have a lot of what is the most common value selected or what number of students out of the collective you know, intervened, how many intervention strategies, strategies did they utilize? But some of the really interesting questions about why I can make assumptions about, I can guess about based on the data that's out there and make some educated assumptions about maybe this is why. But not having that student voice, not having that qualitative piece feels really lacking because there's a lack of nuance and complexity about, well, why in this situation, but not in that situation? Or when you said this, did you really mean that? Which I think would have been interesting if it had had a more mixed methods approach to the data which was actually my original plan, um, kind of creating my dissertation plan originally. It was going to have the qualitative piece that I was thinking would be interesting through interviews or focus groups with students and have the quantitative piece through the data analysis from this existing data set. But as we were kind of moving into a COVID year of education, in terms of my own well-being and balance between work, family, and school, and not wanting to put additional stressors or burdens on students in, at the participating university of, you know, scheduling an interview or having them talk about things that could be complicated in a time when everything's really complicated, just felt better to have a more narrow focus. Yeah, sometimes when we're planning the dissertation, it kind of gets a little bit ahead of us. So it's it's good to hear someone who had an initial plan and then scaled it back for their own well-being. Because we, we forget that this is just a small pebble in the beach of research and it doesn't have to be groundbreaking. It really We're really just trying to make an impact and fill a gap as best we can. Yeah, I think remembering to stay humble about that was helpful in terms of, you know, the best dissertation is often a done dissertation and not losing sight of that goal. A hundred percent. So tell me about your findings. What really stood out to you? What didn't? What was shocking? What did you kind of assume going in? Because I think we always come into these studies with assumptions as much as we say we don't. Yeah, I think I came away finding a bunch of things really interesting. I think maybe I was more interested than a lot of the people I've been talking to about it. Because you know, my friends and family are like, okay, yeah, whatever. Um, so it's kind of fun to talk to people who are really curious about educational research. So thank you. You know, one of the things that I thought was really 
good that I found, not super surprising, but also, you know, somewhat noteworthy, is that the majority of the participants who completed the survey that were in the data set who saw an incident that might be an incident of sexual assault or was an incident of sexual assault in their perception intervened to help, which sounds really good. I think we often you know, hear about you know, the bystander effect and that people maybe don't want to intervene for a lot of reasons. And there are some things about the data that make it really hard to know. Are the students that said they saw something the ones who saw something because they felt empowered to intervene so they were more ready to see something? Are the students thinking back on it, the ones that like, Ugh, I don't even care about this, didn't even fill out the survey to begin with. You know, it's hard to know why there was such a strong intervention rate, but it felt really good to see that of, oh, this is a really helpful and supportive group of students that were in the study. So that's positive. It was also really interesting to me in that same kind of vein that the intervention rate between the situations that students perceived to be active sexual assaults and those that they perceived were situations that could progress to a sexual assault had pretty similar intervention rates in terms of about two-thirds of people who saw something intervened in some way. But the thing that was really interesting to me is the reason people didn't intervene in those two situations were significantly different. So in the active assaults, the only reason people really didn't intervene is because they didn't feel safe intervening. But in the potential sexual assault situations, people who didn't intervene didn't intervene for a lot of reasons. Some of them just like, yeah, I just didn't intervene. You know, having that piece be totally absent from the other data set, I thought was interesting. And it could just be that I didn't feel safe is a pretty socially appropriate reason not to intervene. You know, there's not a lot of judgment about not getting involved in an active assault if you don't think it's safe to do so. We would want that for our students. We want them to say, you know what, I probably shouldn't get myself involved in this right now. So I think that was really interesting. I think from a looking at the values data, it was somewhat interesting. The, actually, not somewhat. The thing I was really interested was how different student perception of community values and how different personal values were depending on student participant identity. You know, for example, looking at personal values, the personal value selection differences between men and women were significantly different. So the survey I had included 42 character values that students could select from. If you know, pick the top, you know, pick five values from the list that are important to you as personal values. And men and women were choosing at significantly different rates for 10 of the 42 values, so like 24% of the values were just differently selected, which I thought was really interesting. And the other thing that I thought was really interesting is those differences were themed in some sense. The values that were most often selected by men tended to be values associated with achievement or values related to self-control. And the values that were more selected by women tended to be values more associated with relationships which I thought was a really interesting thing as you think about, you know, who are the young people in our communities and what are they, what do, what do they value for themselves? Where do those values come from and how do those values, you know, impact their experience in the world and their experience with others and looking at it kind of with the lens of this study, how are those gender differences in values maybe playing out in campus sexual violence? 
the gender differences was an area that I was, I, I kept coming back to as I was reading your findings, even as simple as when you broke down to how people intervened, where women were more likely to bring someone in to intervene with them or on their behalf, whereas men were more likely to intervene by themselves and just immediately intervene. Thinking about that, did you get a sense of the education that the institution had done with its students around Title IX or sexual assault? And do you think that the way that that education was provided maybe impacted how students responded? That's a good question. Um, you know, I know the participating institution does do sexual violence prevention education for all students, and that that training and that education does have a bystander intervention component to it. And I know for the past couple of years, there's also been more intentional consent communication training that incoming first-year students go through. I don't know necessarily how gender plays a role in how students perceive those trainings or how they experience that or what they take away. You know, I think all of those trainings are kind of geared to be gender neutral in their response. Like they're not, you know, like a men's program or a women's program on this campus. They are more everybody together. Let's learn about, you know, how empowered you can be and how you can be set your boundaries and how you can help appear and, you know, what the general expectations and culture of our campus is supposed to be. But that's an interesting question. It was, I believe, it was 64% of the individuals who took the survey said they had witnessed behavior that they felt was leading to a sexual assault. And that was a percentage that I was just like, I think we know that we should know that that's happening on college campuses. But it was just a, it was a moment to see it like there in black and white that I was really, really shocked about to see it so blatantly like there. Like, this is a reality of what our students are dealing with on a daily basis. Yeah, it certainly is. And that's one of the pieces I would have loved to have some more qualitative data about, or just some more data about that piece. You know, I'm really wondering if with a larger, more robust sample, I think 19% of the student population participated in the survey that I had access to the data from. So it's hard to know if, you know, the ones that click the link are the ones who had seen something and really wanted to share something about that. Or if the student's perception of this is a situation that could lead to sexual violence, that was a situation that really was likely to lead to some type of misconduct or assault, or if it was like a little bit of stranger danger in a new environment of, oh, this feels sketchy, but maybe there's nothing actually risky taking place. I would have liked to get some greater insight into that. So we've touched on a couple of different areas that are ripe for future research. What are some other elements of the findings that you think you would like to explore more or you think other people should kind of take advantage of exploring? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, one of the things that I found that I thought was really interesting is that students of different identity groups had different perceptions of their community's values. So these aren't the personal values we were, I was talking about related to gender. For example, students who identified as LGBT were more likely to view their peers and their community as holding the values of chaste and devout, whereas students who identified as heterosexual were more likely to perceive their community and their peers as being open-minded and respectful. And that's a pretty different tone, in my opinion, you know, from thinking about your community as chaste and devout to opening, you know, to open-minded and respectful. So I think that's a really interesting place to dig a little bit deeper in is what's happening there. 
you know, are the students who are not straight on this campus having negative experiences in the community that are making them not feel that their peers are respectful and open-minded? Or um, the participating institution was a religiously affiliated institution. And I wonder if there was a disconnect or a discomfort between personal identities of being gay, lesbian, bisexual, or trans, and a religious institution who has kind of doctrine related to not always being super inclusive to those who fit those identities. You know, so which kind of came first, the feeling of, I don't know if I belong here or the experiences within that community. You are, out of all of the participants we've had, it's overwhelmingly been qualitative. So you're one of the few pure quantitative dissertations we've gotten, which was exciting to see because we want to celebrate all types of research. Um, did you find that that was reflective in your cohort? Were you or did you find at your institution there was a lot of quantitative research going on? I know you'd originally talked about int intending this to be a mixed method study. Yeah. Um, I was in a cohort of 17, so we're relatively small, but also, I don't know, depending on some groups, bigger than the cohorts that the institution had been recently. And I think we were pretty evenly split between qualitative, quantitative, and mixed methods. I think we felt, you know, whatever our interest was or whatever, you know, access we had to data or whatever kind of questions we wanted to answer, we really were empowered to, you know, go down that path and have the support to do so. That is a pretty big cohort. Like I'm in a cohort of four. Heidi, you were in a cohort of. It was eight. There's three of us that actually four of us that uh, finished the program. We started with eight. So yeah, still, still well smaller than yours, Sarah. Yeah, we were pretty big. My institution typically has like a every third year there's a cohort in a different geography area. You know, they're, oh, this is the group that we're working with kind of physically removed from campus. And I think the, that group just finished the year before I did. So I think there was maybe a local group that was like, we're ready to start bigger than normal. Oh, that's interesting. That's a lot of support. So that's It was really a lot wonderful. of support and that was really nice. Yeah. Um, so taking classes with the same group over time was really positive, I think in terms of all of us. I think all but one of us just finished. Oh, oh we great. Yeah, we were a group of 18 at one point. Someone had a you know, a life complication that kind of sure. delayed their progress and said, I'm not going to continue with this cohort. Maybe I'll join a different one in the future. But right. all of us, except for that one person, just finished. So we're feeling pretty good. That's awesome. Well, we're all on our own timeline. So as exactly. long as you finish, it doesn't matter when. Yep. So kind of getting back to your research, really, what does all, this all mean? How would you like your study to move scholar the scholarly conversation forward? You know, I think anytime we learn more about our community and the students that are within our institutions, any individual institution or also, you know, campus environments collectively, I think we're doing good work. I think the more we understand people, the more we can, you know, meet their needs and create, you know, educational environments that are, you know, robust and dynamic and inclusive. So just in that sense of, hey, we learned something new, that there's this relationship that hadn't been explored before between college student values and bystander intervention, I think is a positive. I think there are some ways to apply that possibly to hopefully increase bystander intervention rates and increase campus safety in positive ways. You know, I know all colleges are required to provide 
you know, bystander intervention training and sexual assault prevention education. But we also know if you spend time working in student misconduct or in sexual violence prevention and response work, misconduct and violence still occurs in our campuses, regardless of our prevention education efforts, regardless of really trying to create safe and inclusive campus communities. You know, our campuses aren't separate from our greater society. You know, they're little bitty microcosms that have some of the same, you know, power dynamics and challenges that our greater society does. So I think there might be ways recognizing some of the things that were discovered. You know, for example, it seems that students who viewed themselves as, you know, caring and, and students who viewed their peers as deserving of intervention were more likely to intervene than students who didn't either hold the value of compassionate for themselves as a personal value or who didn't kind of view their peers as deserving of intervention were less likely to intervene. So I think recognizing that we can incorporate that sort of thing of you are someone who can make a positive difference. You know, these people around you deserve to have a really positive education. They deserve your help. We have an obligation to help and care for each other You know, in this community. I think on a similar thing, there seems to be a relationship between people thinking that things are going to work out fine and not intervening. So helping students recognize that, hey, just because something isn't an active assault at the current moment doesn't mean that it won't progress to one. Just because you hope that things work out okay doesn't mean they necessarily will, you know, and giving them the empowerment to say, hey, if you see something, you really should do something, even if you think it's probably nothing. So I think utilizing that type of understanding of what are people thinking internally? How do their values and the perception of their community influence their behavior? And how, when we kind of recognize some of those relationships, can we tailor our prevention education and our marketing to get more intervention rather than less? That was going to be exactly a question that I had when I read your chapter five, Sarah. You know, I, I was struck by the relationship between likelihood to intervene and the personal value of compassionate and my first thought was, well, how can we make folks more compassionate if that means they're going to be more likely to intervene? Had you thought of, in a practical sense, how to do that? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing the thought might have crossed your mind as you read those, those data, those findings, and thought, well, this has practical implications, but how do we translate these survey findings into this practical piece? It's a really good question. I don't have a magic answer right now of how do we create people who are compassionate about the needs of other people. I think kind of societally, we're at a point right now where we're like, okay, we should care about each other regardless of our personal experience and identity. How do we create kind of this culture, which is an exciting time to, you know, kind of have a research that's sort of tangentially related to the idea of how do we care for those around us? How do other people's problems become our problems that we want to help address because collectively we all are better when we have a campus community or greater community that is inclusive and safe and respectful for everyone. So I don't have a great answer for that right now, but it is a really good question. I think helping students just recognize the idea that other people need you. You are powerful. You have the ability to create positive change even if maybe you don't recognize that about yourself yet. 
you know, I think most students that I've worked with care about people. They care about their friends. They care about their family. And just maybe helping translate that idea of, hey, you care about other people. Let's think about that kind of as a, as a bigger idea. Like I think maybe caring feels like it's maybe on a relation, like one-on-one relational idea and compassion feels like it's kind of bigger than the interpersonal and it's more collective. And maybe that's not totally accurate, but I try to wrap my head around what's the difference between caring and compassionate because compassionate was found to be really have a significant relationship with greater intervention, but the value of caring, which was also on the list students could choose from, didn't have that same relationship. So what was happening there? And how are those two different? Which I think greater research would help shed some light into how are students seeing these two on the long list as being different? It is one more relatable or accessible than the other. Because I think sometimes when we talk about compassion, it seems like this big, this big like multi-responsibility value, right? As opposed to just like, no, I obviously I care about my friends. Like, yeah, I want them to be okay. How do we spread that to the community you're in and How do you show that you care about everyone? Don't want these bad things to happen. There's also one of the benefits of of the study being quantitative is that you have these statistics that show that a majority of students are willing to intervene in some form or another. The numbers of students that were not intervening were very low. Take that beyond the site institution or not, but you do have the ability to say like, no, this is, there's some social norming that can come from that. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. When we talk about values of our students, there's also the values of the institution. Do you think there's an effort here where institutions can take a look at how they're projecting their values on their community and instilling their values in maybe more of a curricular sense to get these behaviors to be more reflective? I think that's very possible. And that feels a little bit um, sort of transactional. But that's not really the word I'm looking for. The idea that, oh, if we know that having the value of whatever is positive, we should promote the value of whatever. And on some level, that's just good common sense. If we know that if we kind of infuse our campus community with the social norms and values that kind of contribute to more positive things, there's nothing to lose from that. But it also feels a little bit, I don't know, I think sometimes we think about, or I think about like a mission of an institution and, you know, what is this institution about when, whatever the institution is, it feels a little bit commercial to say, and now we're going to care about the value of such and such, not because it's who we are or what we really believe in, but because we know it'll do good things for us. It feels sort of like, you know, take your vitamins, but vitamins are good for us. So maybe infusing values that we know do positive things for our community makes sense. It's interesting because I wonder, like, is that something that is more impactful at a religiously affiliated institution whose values tend to be more reflective of personal attributes as opposed to when you think of those big R1 institutions, they're like intellect and excellence and academic achievement and those focusing on more of the like the studious scholarly initiatives. There's content analysis to be done there, right? <laughs> there definitely is. Yeah, and even in, you know, at like a large, you know, research one institution, my experience, there are kind of pockets of smaller, more inter- intentional communities within that greater community. And maybe that's the place that it fits in better at a place like that. Like, you know, as an institution, 
we value, you know, intellect and the pursuit of knowledge and, you know, being really thoughtful in these areas. But, you know, in this organization or in this office or in this whatever, we're focusing more on how do we build really supportive relationships with little pockets around this place we can support each other as we work toward intellect. Well, my question is, you know, Sarah, you're you're being so thoughtful about the way this applies at at institutions, uh, both small and large. What's going to be your next step in getting some of this work out there and in front of student conduct folk that try to offer trainings and and education for our students or for our campus communities? What what are your plans in sharing this this new knowledge with the world? You know, this is all pretty new still for me. I just defended about six weeks ago. So I haven't had a lot of time to think about, okay, so now what? But I think there's lots of opportunities for, you know, professional conference presentations or scholarly articles that kind of put some of this information out into the world for a practitioner to be like, hey, and not just from a research standpoint of, isn't this kind of cool that we learned something? But okay, so we learned something. How do we serve our communities and serve our students with this knowledge? So nothing glamorous or exciting, but I think, you know, getting out to like an ASCA or an NASPA or just getting the word out like, hey, this is something that could have relevance, not only in student conduct or in violence prevention or in Title IX, but kind of collectively, holistically for our campus communities. When people care about each other, they are more likely to help each other. Don't we all want our students to have support all around them, not only from the offices who pay people to support students, but kind of a wraparound care through our community itself? I think this research is ripe for a number of scholarly articles. ASCA just started up the journal again. I think they'd be really welcome to have you know, an article about your research. And all around, if our students have more community-focused values, we have a stronger community, whether that's in a residence hall or in the entirety of the institution. Yeah, I agree. We're really talking about, like, in my work in Title IX at my institution, you know, as I kind of have this knowledge from my dissertation about, okay, so in our violence prevention work, we're talking about kind of creating just more community norms related to care and respect for others. Like we're talking about as we kind of come back from a more socially distant educational experience in the past year and a half to a more in-person experience, how do we reintegrate being actually in community with people as opposed to kind of connected remotely, but sort of isolated? You know, and we're thinking it's a really great opportunity to kind of pair some of the things we've always been talking about, about sexual consent and respect with just general talking to people about what they need and respecting those boundaries. It's as simple as, hey, are you doing hugs right now? You know, some people are really excited to come and hug their classmates. Others are like, I am just not ready for this yet. Yeah, it's interesting to think of the term consent beyond sex, but to actual like, no, I I want you to stay six feet away from me because I'm still dealing with coming back into the real world. Yeah. And everyone's in a different place right now. Mm -hmm. Even just trying to plan a cohort celebration for, you know, after graduation, which we're not having an in-person graduation, but trying to connect with like, let's get together and have some drinks, maybe socially distant. It is really complicated to say, okay, what are you comfortable with? What are you not comfortable with? Because all 17 of us 
have different risk factors in our life and in our community. We have different needs. We have different vaccination statuses. We have different health issues and trying to figure out, okay, how do we be together in a way that meets everybody's needs? So if you had to do a second dissertation, which, you know, thankfully you don't. <laughs> oh, she's making the, the sign of the cross to ward that idea off. No. I don't blame you. Um, what would you, what, what, what other research would you want to delve into? Like, what are some, still some questions that you have on, on this or other topics that arose during your doctoral study? You know, I really think that just understanding some of the nuances and complexities and some of the whys behind some of the reasons that people engage to help their community or pull back and don't would be really interesting. You know, I think we see all the time that there's a lot of reasons that it's not the right time or place to intervene or that students don't feel like they know how to intervene sometimes. It's just, it's complicated and it's messy. You know, I know as an individual, I've seen things, you know, not at work. I'm like, I don't know if I should get involved in that or not. Maybe I should. Someone looks like they need help. Maybe I shouldn't. I don't feel like it's, there's some complications at play that make it maybe not the right time and place or situation to, you know, engage in. So I think really understanding some of that, like, you know, what's happening kind of in the brain of a person as they're assessing a situation and saying, should I get involved or should I not get involved would be interesting. Are you, uh, obviously you're a practitioner, are you planning on continuing research? I see myself as a practitioner more than a researcher. I think, you know, with access to students and data as a practitioner, now I'm better able to look at those situations and that data and say, what can we learn from that? So I kind of sort of like a small R researcher of, okay, there's a situation, there's this data, there's this assessment that needs to be done. How do we kind of pull that apart to see what's in there? But first and foremost, I see myself more as a practitioner and not, you know, a big R researcher. Well, I have a question about just that because I thought I was going to back into admin world. What would you say through your doctoral study? What are some of your lessons learned or your takeaways from doing research or assessment that that would help those in your office or in your world that don't have that higher level of education? I think just the understanding that data comes in lots of forms and that it's not necessarily scary. Like I think you hear about, you know, doing research or doing analysis and it feels a little bit unaccessible. You're like, oh yeah, that's for someone else. That's for someone fancier. That's for someone, you know, far more whatever. But I think in looking at, you know, kind of going through the process, recognizing that there are a lot of ways to assess a program or a situation or a student. There's a lot of pieces of data you have access to and it doesn't have to be like super fancy, you know, computer driven math that is leading to your analysis. It can be, you know, really simple. Like a lot of my like analysis, the data analysis, a lot of it for my dissertation was just descriptive statistics, looking at how many people said this versus how many people said something else. And that feels really underwhelming in terms of what I think a dissertation should be. But it answered some questions that existed and it was meaningful in ways that, you know, having answers makes meaning. So I think, you know, the process of how do we get there often feels more complicated than it actually needs to be. 
So on that note, how I kind of like to leave these interviews, the final question being, what are any pieces of advice you have for individuals who are currently on their doctoral journey, whether that's with classwork or the dissertation or the entirety of the program? You know, the biggest piece of advice I have to people who are in the program or thinking about being in a program is it's just one step at a time. Like I think if you think about, you know, writing a dissertation, it sounds like big and overwhelming and new and scary, but it's really just a bunch of little things added up together over a period of time. You know, I was really worried before I started my doctoral program, like, hey, you know, I've always done well academically, but now I have a real job instead of, you know, when I was was in school. The first time in school was my real job. Or you know, I have a family. Now I have the, all these complexities. And do I want this? Can I do this? And once I realized, yes, I do want this, you know, realizing that just like anything else you want to do, making time for it and kind of working at it step by step is really helpful and not getting overwhelmed in kind of the big picture, but kind of focusing on, okay, here's the big picture. Here's where I'm trying to go. But the path to get there is just a lot of small steps. Excellent. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to to talk about your research with us. We really do appreciate it. Any final thoughts before we go? I don't think so. Just thank you so much for talking to me. This is really fun. Thank you again to our listeners. Please remember to subscribe to hear all future episodes of the Beyond the Defense podcast. New episodes are released Fridays. Be sure to follow the Beyond the Defense podcast on Facebook and Twitter to receive updates on upcoming episodes and to get more information about sharing your research.